Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today, I'm here with Kai Gogwilt, who's the CTO of Ironclad. Kai, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah, for sure. Eric, thanks for having me on. Super excited to do this. So my background, as you said, I'm the CTO and co-founder of Ironclad. I have a software engineering background. So before starting Ironclad, I was a software engineer at Palantir, uh, where I worked on the government side of the product. And then before that, I did my uh, undergraduate and master's work at MIT in computer science and physics. I am in the Bay Area and have been for the past couple of years, but I'm a native New Yorker born and raised in Manhattan. As for my background, as I said, I'm a software engineer by background and by training. So I guess I'm maybe a little bit of an an imposter on your show today, coming from the engineering background, uh, as opposed to a more solid product background, but have done a fair amount of thinking on uh, Ironclad's product. And yeah, excited to have this conversation today. Yeah. So take me through Palantir a little bit. What was it like working there? You know, they're uh, known for their secrecy, though now as a a public company, uh, it's going to be a little different, right? I have to imagine so, as I'm sure is the same for you. I feel like anything before starting my own company is feels like the distant past, feels like a distant memory. And I know Palantir has changed a lot since I was there. I think Palantir back when I was there, was actually a, a really interesting place in terms of developing ideas around how to build an early stage product. Uh, it was almost run almost like a, call it startup accelerator program or an incubator for new products. So uh, there were a lot of different teams working on really cool ideas. You know, I was born and raised in Manhattan. I was in middle school on 9-11 and the idea of working to build a product that could help that stop that from happening ever again was super compelling to me and and something that I really devoted myself to a lot. Incidentally, there were also, at the time I was there, no product managers at Palantir. And so a lot of the product management work ended up being done by an amalgamation of engineers and designers. Uh, And so we all kind of found our way through a very unique development and product development process where you couldn't actually talk to your users much of the time. The development cycle and product cycle was was very slow uh, in terms of the feedback loops and there were no product managers. So I think that's probably where I got my product management background was by working through it with a number of other engineers and designers who didn't necessarily have a huge amount of experience there. So tell me, you mentioned learnings from Palantir that you took for Ironclad. Talk to me about what they were. Yeah, I think a lot of maybe the basic rules of product management in terms of talking to your user, formulating ideas that you're going to work on as kind of problem statements that are user-focused as opposed to technology-focused. And the interesting thing was... I got to see what happened when that didn't happen. 
and where that was kind of, it was the norm for that not to happen. And so it became a competitive advantage within teams within Palantir when you did focus on the user, when you did focus on formulating the problem in terms of what the user was trying to accomplish. And the teams that did that succeeded and built really, really interesting products. And the ones that didn't do that also built interesting products that were maybe like, well, were very clearly not as user-oriented or generally as useful. So I guess it was all about living, (laughs) living and experiencing the results of what happens when you don't practice core product management tenets. Yeah, yeah. So now, now you're at Ironclad. Talk to me about you know the problems you're solving in Ironclad. What you guys do there? Yeah. So Ironclad is a digital contracting platform. The space that I think we play in is called contract lifecycle management. It's kind of this older school space, but in general, I like to think of it not as contract lifecycle management, but more as turning contracting into a collaborative endeavor. And that's really what's always driven me in terms of what I find motivating to work on is taking processes that are kind of boring or routine and turning them into much more collaborative processes. I don't know if you've ever been on uh, contract negotiation or red line email or something like that, but it can... Uh, I definitely have. I, I completely understand that uh, some of the pain, especially when you deal with, you know, documents flying back and forth, right? And making sure you're working off of newest copies and yes. There's yeah. a whole art form to it. Absolutely. And in that case, at least what I've experienced is sometimes it can come across a little adversarial and maybe even like there's some animosity between the two sides of like, well, why aren't you agreeing to this like very normal thing? And I actually think a lot of that animosity or the adversarial nature of the law and lawyers that we think about and that we see in kind of popular culture and media is actually in large part because the tooling is not very good. And so because there isn't good collaborative tooling for contracting, people get stressed out, aren't able to collaborate well, and lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, you're two sides trying to agree to, to something that will benefit both sides. So excited to solve that problem with our team at Ironclad and uh, turn contracting from an adversarial thing into a collaborative endeavor. Now, as CTO at Ironclad, talk to me about the teams you oversee. I currently oversee no teams. (laughs) So I am, I guess, technically an individual contributor at Ironclad. I would say I've overseen a lot of teams over the course of the past few years. And I would say maybe the only thematically similar thing across those years has been my role as maybe like a chief collaborator or chief listener or chief connector. I spend a lot of time listening to our team, listening to our customers, listening to the market, and trying to help connect the dots. At the end of the day, I'm not the best at anything within Ironclad, but I can I know everyone and I can connect the people who are best at that particular domain to the highest value problem. Now, how, how does that role integrate or interact with the product team and, and how do you in, influence the product team? Yeah, so I work closely with Stephen, our VP of product, uh, as well as just generally people on the product engineering design teams. And I think one thing that is perhaps my influence on Ironclad and product at Ironclad and perhaps a little bit of 
Palantir's influence on product at Ironclad is that product is very much a shared burden across the entire company. It's not just about product managers, like researching, understanding, and then deciding. It's about this wonderful synthesis. And we definitely see product as kind of like the conduit for creating this synthesis and product as the responsibility of the entire company. So I would say that's something that perhaps is a partly a, a way that I influence the product team at Ironclad as CTO. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, collaboration, listening, talking to customers, it, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, what I'd consider product skill sets in your role as CTO there. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. Now, talk to me a, bit, a little bit about Ironclad's core values. I'm, I'm a big fan of the importance of core values. I, I think in, in general, in startups, they're, uh, no pun intended, a, a little undervalued. Talk to me about how they play a role at Ironclad and how they play a role in how you approach building product. Absolutely. So Ironclad's four core values are intent, empathy, drive, and integrity. You didn't ask this, but a bit about how we actually came up with them several years ago. We asked the team and uh, Jason and I collaborated to help seize some ideas to think about what we loved about working with one another, what we wanted to emphasize and grow as our team scaled, as our company scaled. And these four words were helped capture some of the themes that we heard from the team, some of the ideas that we ourselves had. In terms of building the product, I would say empathy is front and center. We talk about empathy as caring more about the user, caring more about the customer. I like to say that our competitive advantage in our market is that we frankly care more about our users and our customers than any of our competitors. You can see this in terms of how we try to foster the community. We try to support the community of users, people who are contract experts, people who are maybe the loan GC or attorney at a company, trying to connect them, trying to make sure that they get to know one another, can share their problems, share their techniques with one another in a safe space. It's definitely also informed product. I think one thing that's very clear when you start to get to know people at Ironclad is that we're obsessed with lawyers, we're obsessed with contracts. And I think that obsession is it was something that we actually start to take for granted internally within Ironclad. We don't realize that the rest of the world maybe doesn't care as much about lawyers, maybe doesn't care as much about contracts. And so that relentless focus on the customer, that relentless focus on the user comes from that empathy value of putting ourselves in our customers and our users' shoes and in using this to inform what we build so that we build not the most flashy thing, necessarily, but so that we build the most useful thing, the thing that will help our users and customers the best. Yeah, I love that core value of empathy. As it turns out, I, I asked during the podcast, you know, people to describe themselves. And what you hear, one of the most common things you hear from product managers, if they pick a word, is empathetic, right? So I, I think it, it's interesting how you, you've talked about how it's a shared burden at a product is a shared burden at Ironclad and how one of your core values really is highly correlated or at least associated with what I see uh, a trait of, of product managers. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Talk to me about 
about being product focused at your company because it is a shared burden and, and how you evangelize the, the importance of product throughout the org. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I think it really goes back to caring about the user and caring about the customer. Maybe I might describe Ironclad not as product focused, but as user focused. And as far as evangelizing the importance of product throughout the company, I think that almost comes for granted now. There are certainly practices that we are putting into place to make sure that we continue to foster that. But you can see it in terms of the fact that our CS team and our sales team will actually write up tickets and issues as user stories. And the synthesis of product feedback that comes in from teams outside of the product team are often written in very, very thoughtful ways, really distilling not just, oh, I want this extra button here, but more specifically what the problem, what the user's trying to accomplish, what the scenario was and and who the different users were, who the different users and personas are. In terms of making sure that we're evangelizing the importance of product, some of the practices that we have around that are bi-weekly show and tell, where we kind of give an opportunity for everyone at the company to show what they're working on and share with the company the cool things that they're thinking about. We have kind of ad hoc lunch and learns where teams like the uh, product management team or the product design team will teach the company about, or anyone who wants to join the uh, lunch and learn, they'll teach about product principles or design principles. And I think this has really helped to continue to foster this product focus across the organization it hasn't created that product focus. I think that comes from like early on caring so deeply about the customer and the user, but it has certainly helped to continue it and to, to promote it and to continue to grow it. So talk to me a little bit about the space you guys compete in. Maybe first give kind of a, a little overview of how big Ironclad is, but then tell me a little bit about the space and, and how you stay on top of innovation in the space. Yeah, great question. So Ironclad We're about 170 people now, but we're working with uh, hundreds of legal teams across the country and frankly, across the world. We tend to work with companies like Pendo and we work with also global international companies like L'Oreal and MasterCard. And the, the interesting thing here is that all of these companies work on very, very different things, are perhaps in different stages of their life cycle, but the legal team and the contracts problem that the legal team is helping the company face and solve is actually quite similar, whether you're the legal team at Pendo or the legal team at L'Oreal or the legal team at MasterCard. So that's a bit about Ironclad, how the kind of like opportunity and the market, as far as competition in the space, I would say that CLM as a market has frankly, been a bit of a dishonest space. There's a a stat that we like to reference a lot by Gartner saying that about 50% of CLM deployments are likely to fail or are going to fail. And I think this comes down to a misalignment in the market because a lot of vendors in the space are misrepresenting what their platforms are capable of. And then if you recall earlier talking about Ironclad's core values, um, I mentioned integrity, which 
I have also heard many people say is is the most trite of core values that a company can have. But I integrity, I think, holds a very, very special place in my heart as a company value. In a space like CLM, where there's so much dishonesty, we've held true to this core value of integrity from the very beginning. And early on, I would say it actually hurt a lot of our sales cycles because we were very straightforward about our capabilities and we were very straightforward about the capabilities that we didn't have. But something that I'll say that I think was very encouraging is that we very quickly realized the value from staying high integrity where we lost a deal in one quarter, but the very next quarter they turned around and came back to us and said, it turns out that vendor flat out lied to us about what the capabilities were. And so by staying true to our core value of integrity, by continuing to faithfully represent what we can and cannot do, I think we've created a reputation for ourselves in our market of telling things honestly, of have, being high integrity uh, about our product and about our deployment and about the service we offer. And I've been very excited about that because I think that's that's something that I care a lot about externally to startups or anything is hoping that if you take the right path, you will eventually bear fruit. And I'm very encouraged that taking a high integrity approach can actually pay out very quickly in a startup kind of situation. <laughs> You know, I, I feel now we've, we've covered two of your four core values, right? Uh, yeah. Integrity, empathy. I feel like we should go back and talk about the other two and how they've affected the ascension, the building of Ironclad. Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess the two we haven't really touched on are intent and drive. Intent, we talk a lot about making sure that we are aligning on the top-level goal and not arguing so much about the path to take there. So while I said empathy was maybe the most in line with our product philosophy. I think intent is also one that has a lot of ramifications on product. I know it's very useful in product to set up goals, but also measures of those goals. And we actually run our entire company at, at Ironclad on a company plan that sets up top level goals for the company. We usually have about four to six goals for the company with measures on those goals things like revenue or gross retention rate and things like that. And then for each team, we have goals that we set and measures on those goals that kind of like bubble up into the company plan. And I think this is when we first started doing this a few years ago, I frankly thought it was a little bit too heavy handed for a company of at the time, 20 people, but I'm so glad that we laid the foundation early on like that, because what it allowed us to do is state kind of the thesis for how we as a company were going to succeed and allowed all of the teammates and at the company to poke holes in it pretty much immediately, rather than hoping that maybe Jason or Kai knew what they were doing and kind of taking it on faith that we were going to succeed if we went through these actions. So I think there are a lot of analogies there to how I've seen our product team succeed in terms of setting up clear goals and setting up measures on those goals, which might be imperfect, but at least will help us have a, an objective way of understanding how we're tracking against those goals. So that's the value of intent, our core value of intent at Ironclad. The last one, I guess, is drive. Drive is about striving to improve. We have, I think we've 
been called a low-key intense culture. <laughs> and so there's definitely a lot of a drive to self-improve, but I think there's also a lot of drive to improve the rest of the team around you. So we really, really emphasize trying to come up with systems and trying to come up with efficiency gains that aren't just going to benefit you individually, but are going to benefit the team around you. Examples of that would be, you know, the, the customer success team, not just writing onboarding emails for one particular customer, but from very, very early on documenting these, creating like an internal site knowledge base for what was working, what wasn't working in terms of onboarding customers and taking that extra time to not just like successfully deploy one customer, but to record that knowledge and to take the time to document it so that it could be replicated by others and the, the entire team could benefit from it. I'm not entirely sure how I, I can tie drive to product in this case, but I don't know, maybe you have an idea there. No, I'm, I think you know it's hard to deliver without the drive component. And I think it does tie together a nice balance with, you know, empathy for the users and being user focused, yet having the drive to kind of continue pushing innovation, right? Which which leads me to a question that we were going to talk about, which is that the balance between user value and having a user focus, and at the same time driving innovation and new tech. So, talk to me about that balance. Yeah, for sure. This is very top of mind for me, this balance between new technology and user value, in part because I've been working so closely with our team on utilizing advances in natural language processing and AI. And I think this is a great example of where new technology is going to become critical for delivering user value. I frankly think AI and natural language processing has been a little overhyped for a while. It can make a really cool demo, but then the value that it delivers to the user can sometimes be marginal at best. But I think we really turned a corner in natural language processing last year in 2019, where the technology is now really ready for the prime time in terms of building for contracting. But I think there are also a lot of new technology trends that are not necessarily quite ready for prime time, or at least not in domains like contracting, blockchain comes to mind. I think there's a lot of interest in where it could go. And I think there's definitely a lot of interesting applications, but we've been seeing a lot of vendors in the contracting space talk about how blockchain is going to innovate things in contracting. So I would say before you take a novel approach to this, or before you try to apply novel tech to a problem, you should probably try to like lay a really good foundation. And I think that's happened for AI and contracting. I think there is a good foundation now for applying AI to contracting, but I think that hasn't yet happened for blockchain. So talk to me a little bit about what people get wrong with AI and machine learning. I don't know exactly where to start. <laughs> I would say maybe the, the main thing is with AI and machine learning, it's, such, it's a domain with so much promise that people often don't look beyond the question, do you have AI or are we applying AI to this problem? And so I think the thing people tend to get wrong about AI and machine learning is that they lose sight of what problem they're actually trying to solve and whether AI and machine learning are the right tools to solve that job. Beyond that, I think people also underestimate 
the investment it's going to take to actually apply AI to a problem. Um, there's this problem of what does it take to start applying AI or there's kind of the, the cold start problem. What does an AI product look like out of the box and how long does it take before it's actually useful? And I think people are underestimate how many hours it's going to take to actually have that technology pay off and pay dividends later on. And even if they have the data scale to support it. Yeah, I think skill and hiring and having the right people uh, becomes essential, especially in that space and in an environment where the talented people in that space are obviously really high in demand. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely think probably in terms of building software platforms, it's kind of starting to become critical to have some sort of AI expertise. But I'm even thinking on the kind of internal business process side, if you're uh, at a large corporation, I think there's tremendous promise to start being able to apply AI to business problems that aren't necessarily building product related. <laughs> there are internal systems and internal processes that are going to benefit from it. And I think it's right to start looking at it now, but I think that's the area where people really underestimate the amount of data that is necessary to make this work. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about people. What qualities do you look for in product people, product managers? And then I'm curious what you feel makes up a, a strong team. Like how do those qualities and people, you know, gel into a strong team? Great question. I have, I think the the main theme of how I think about people and strong teams is actually in that integrity value as well, which is it's all about trust. And so what I personally look for in product people at Ironclad is that kind of trust aspect. Is this a person who's going to go above and beyond in terms of putting trust in their teammates? Or is this a person who wants to do all of the legwork themselves and not trust what their teammates are saying, not trust what their users are saying and things like that? But that trust aspect extends well outside of product as well. And I think extends to or is a, a prerequisite for a certain class of high-functioning team. If you've got hyper-capable people, you would hope that you would have a high-functioning team. But I think a bigger part of it is actually the trust that you have between those teammates. If those teammates are high-functioning and don't trust one another to do the work that they say they're going to do, then all of a sudden you have people doing duplicative work and looking over one another's shoulders to, to make sure that things are being done properly. In terms of how that extends to product teams and, and what we look for in terms of product team members at Ironclad, I think this is a lot about making sure that our product managers are not just good at strategy and structured thinking, but also are very good at communication. And that's not just understanding or synthesizing what they're hearing, but also communicating and aligning the team around a plan. Yeah, I often find that finding PMs with strong communication skills can be difficult. Um, not to say that, you know, that they, a lot of them do have strong communication skills, don't get me wrong there, but it's funny that, that balance between all of the skill sets you're looking for along with those those soft skills. And sometimes those soft skills like communication can be underappreciated in, in some organizations. For sure. So I'm curious, what's the ratio look like engineers, designers, PMs at, at Ironclad? Yeah, so we kind of have a, I would say, one-to-one -to, -one to 
five ratio going on. One product manager, one product designer to about five software engineers and quality engineers. And that ratio has evolved over the years. Seems to like a reasonable ratio. It's it's interesting. It's uh, you know coming from Palantir when you had at least you know when you were first there no PMs right until a pretty solid ratio of one PM for five engineers. Uh, quite a shift. Yeah, I was actually going to say the product management at Ironclad actually came pretty late. I think we were probably about twenty five people on the engineering and design team before we had any or before our first product manager joined. And something that was interesting in hindsight about that is it really made product the shared responsibility of the entire team. You know, we had software engineers, quality engineers, and product designers, but no product managers, which meant the entire team had to think relentlessly about what is the priority, what is the user story and the user problem that we're solving. And I think in hindsight, probably would have brought on a product manager a little bit earlier. <laughs> I just didn't know any because my network was a little bit geared towards uh, software engineers and designers. But I think it also left us with some really positive cultural traits around product being really a shared responsibility of the entire company. The other funny thing that we did that I think we're, we're trying to clarify is we called engineering and design the product team, which I think was very, very helpful in terms of creating this shared identity and this shared responsibility around product. That product is not just something that product management does, but it's something that everyone contributes to. It has since been a little bit confusing because we continue to oftentimes refer to engineering product and design as the product team. And so we get a lot of confused looks when we're asked how big the product team is and people think we're only talking about product managers. We sound a lot more massive than we actually are when, we, when that yeah. confusion happens. Yeah, I can understand that. You know, differing vocabularies can cause some confusion there or differing, differing labels. Let's wrap up this podcast by talking a little bit about you. So what's your favorite product? I would say my notebook is actually my favorite product. I've been using a dot grid notebook for several years now. And I recently discovered probably a year and a half ago, this notebook by Baron Fig is the brand. But yeah, my dot grid notebook. I was going to ask if it's lined or dot grid. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think the dot, dot grid is by far superior. You get all the benefit that you get from lines, but, you know, so often, I guess I'm a very, I'm both a very spatial thinker as well as an obsessive note taker. And so I'm constantly writing things down and would want lines, but then other times taking notes in a very spatially oriented way. Um, and so having just a little bit of suggested structure on the page, I think really helps me think better. Now, digital, how does that end up working in the digital world or? Yeah, good question. I did actually try having an electronic dot grid notebook for a while, one that kind of transferred all of the, what I wrote on the page into a digital format automatically through this like Bluetooth pen. And to be honest, it didn't stick. <laughs> I'm very much the, the paper and pen. And if there's something that is really important enough to transmit, I'll take a picture and 
email it or I'll take the time to transcribe it into a, a more understandable version. So yeah, not very much big on the old school paper and pen approach. No need to digitize it. If it's worth digitizing, then it's probably worth synthesizing and clarifying. Awesome. Well, one final question for you today, Kai. Three words to describe yourself. I feel like with the uh, company values that we've talked about today, I'll probably describe myself in terms of that. I would say intentful, empathetic, and at least I aspire to be high integrity. Well, thank you, sir. This was a blast. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you.